how many of you guys travel for Thanksgiving? Again, some of us, but have us. So Brittany and I and Sadie got up to uh, Seattle to go visit with Brittany's uh, grandparents up there, two sets of grandparents and aunt and uncle, and it was really fun and special uh, to be up there with family. And there's something that's um, really, it's just a, a fun and profound moment when uh, a great-grandparent is holding uh, your own daughter. You know, I've got to see it on my side of the family and to see it with Brittany's side of the family. It's, it's really special and it's fun uh, and kind of funny too because this is the longest time that I've ever gotten to spend with Brittany's grandmother and it really helped me understand Brittany's mom better and then Brittany better and <laughs> now you kind of get to see the whole thing. Um, it's, it's, it's been really fun and special. Now, I have a little hot take here, and hopefully some of you guys are with me. How many of you guys don't like Thanksgiving food, like me? Just a couple of us. Dang. Okay. Well, thank you for the shy raise of hands for the rest of you. Um, my mom and dad are here, and they are so kind and loving. My mom, because she knows I don't like Thanksgiving food, she makes me a plate of hot wings every Thanksgiving. It's just Luke's plate of hot wings, and it's absolutely delicious. You guys might. This is out again, isn't it? You might want to add that. I'll just keep going. You might want to add that to your to your list of Thanksgiving meals. Like there's someone special in the family who's now going to have to make hot wings every single Thanksgiving. But another question is, how many of you guys feel like Thanksgiving is just a particularly contentious time? You know, I was watching, oh, oh and we're back on. Holy Spirit's here again. And I was watching um, the scrolling through Instagram as I do from time to time. Not that often, guys, or I'm a good youth pastor. I Get rid of Instagram, right? But from time to time, and I saw this trend that was going on. Maybe you saw it too. It's families would take videos of everyone in the family. Then a question or a statement would pop up. The one question that they didn't want to have asked of them at Thanksgiving. So basically this question would pop up. And then they push their food out of the way. And they would pretend to leave the room. And it was pretty hilarious. I mean, you can imagine it's this, you know, young married couple. And the question is, when are you going to have kids? <laughs> right? Or it's the, the old retired person, not old, the beautiful, wonderful retired person, and says, is retirement as fulfilling as you thought it would be? Or it's this high school girl with ripped jeans, and the question is, did you get a discount for those jeans? All right? Or it's the high school kid with the haircut and the grandparents asking them, when are you going to get a haircut? All right? So it's all these questions, these things that you know we don't want to talk about at Thanksgiving. We kind of want to ignore it. And Thanksgiving has this reputation for being a fairly contentious time because it's all family coming together. And as you well know, you don't get to choose family. You're a part of a family. And family oftentimes has that one person that you're a bit hesitant about what they're going to say. And if you can't think of that person, that person might be you. And everyone's thinking that about yourself. <clears throat> but that one person, you know, there's this, this unspoken rule at Thanksgiving with families. Usually it's this, you know, we don't talk about politics or religion. Because the one person that does want to talk about politics or religion has been preparing for this conversation all year, right? They're ready. They're ready for it. They've been watching their favorite YouTube people. They've been watching all their interviews. They're ready with that quick reply that's just going to trap you in your words. And where everyone, when we go around and say what we're grateful for, they're going to say they are grateful for their intellectual superiority as they reign the political discussion, right? It's just particular contentious time because people want to trap other people in their words and thoughts. Now, Jesus didn't have Thanksgiving back then, but 
he did have people that were often trying to trap him. All the time, there's people coming up to him to ask him questions, just trying to trap him in his words and be like, ah, Jesus, we got you. You're not the rabbi that you think you are. And there's three ways to handle that kind of conversation. When someone's trying to trap you, the first one is the one that we usually do around Thanksgiving. It's just to ignore it all together, right? You just try to make sure that that conversation doesn't even come up. And the second way is that you can respond in return and try to trap them in a question. And if you don't know how to do that, let me teach you that real quick. So if someone tries to trap you in a question, here's this, it's a classic reply. You might have learned at the schoolyard here when you were a kid. But you ask them, does your mother know you're stupid? Does your mother know you're stupid? You've trapped them. They've got it, okay? Because if they answer yes, they're stupid and their mother knows it. I mean, she's at the end of the table. You can ask her. If they answer no, they're stupid, but they've done a good job hiding it. If they say, I don't know, they're too stupid to even know how to answer the question, okay? So there you go. Stick that in your back pocket. The next time you're in a conversation, does your mother know you're stupid? The third way to handle this conversation is the path that Jesus takes. Uh, Jesus doesn't answer those questions. He asks another question. Jesus plays the role of the pastor therapist. And instead of responding or engaging in a way with more contention, he's actually helping people process where they're coming from. He's helping show the assumptions of the question and the underlying layers of why they're asking and, and what's going on inside of themselves. And this is exactly what's happening in our story for this morning. We're going to be looking at the story of the parable of the Good Samaritans in Luke chapter 10, if you want to open it up for yourself. So Jesus was approached by this lawyer. And, I mean, it's not like the lawyers that we think about today. See, the civil law and the religious law were really intertwined back then. So a lawyer would be kind of more like a theologian. This was someone who had studied the law of Moses. He probably memorized most of it. I mean, he, he knew this thing backwards and forwards. He knew it every which way. And this lawyer, this lawyer theologian, comes up to Jesus and asks him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you might have heard this question coming off the lips of a rich young ruler to Jesus as well. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But the lawyer, unlike the rich young ruler, was asking, trying to trip Jesus up in his words. Maybe he had listened to Jesus' earlier conversation with that rich young ruler. We don't know. But this time, this lawyer, I mean, he'd been preparing for this conversation with Jesus and he approaches Jesus and says okay what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus responds as the pastor therapist and asks him a question he says you're, you're a lawyer you know you studied the scriptures you probably know them really well how do you read them what do you think and the lawyer is ready for this response he's been watching his favorite YouTube videos Response to Jesus says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that's, that's a pretty good answer, isn't it? Now, he studied the scriptures well. 
And he, he knows this, and it was commonplace among that time, and they put those two together. I mean, he's responding with the Shema. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I mean, they would have grown up saying this every single day. Every day, they're supposed to have the Shema written on their doorposts. They say it all the time. It's a communal thing. They know this. I put it together with the passage as we know in Leviticus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, he's, he's studied the law. He knows what to say. And as a student of the law, maybe he was thinking about the Ten Commandments as well. As many of you who have studied the Bible know, the, the Ten Commandments are often broken down into two sections. The first section being love of God and the second section being love of neighbor. The first four commandments about our love for God and having him as our sole God. And the second six about how to love our neighbor. So Jesus looks at him and says, okay, you've, and you've answered correctly. Keep on doing this and you will live. Keep on doing this and, and you will live. You will have life. Well, the conversation doesn't end there. And we don't know really what the lawyer was thinking fully, but... Either he wasn't satisfied with how this intellectual debate was going that prompted him to have another question. Or perhaps he started to think a little bit more about what it means to love God and love our neighbor. Really, because anyone who loves or who thinks about this for longer than probably about 20 seconds realizes that uh, it's, it's not so easy to do. It's easy to say, isn't it? Love God, love others. It's a church slogan right there. If you're starting your own church, just make sure I get the credit for that. It happens all the time. Love God, love others. But if you actually stop to think about that, you will quickly realize that's not as easy as it sounds. Perhaps this lawyer was listening earlier to the teachings of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when Jesus was showing the real heart of the law. And he's talking about anger and lust and judgment. And maybe the lawyer heard that and said, okay, you know what? Maybe I haven't fulfilled the law and the commandments as, as was intended. Maybe I'm not really as, as good as I thought I was or wanted to be. Or how about you? Now, let's say we have the, the pleasure of getting together for a coffee and we go to Hi-Fi together because that's the Rivers coffee shop, apparently. And we have this, you know, the classic debate, I'll pay, you pay, and then you order this $8 drink and I say that we're going Dutch because I don't want to pay for it. So we have this little debate in debacle and then we finally sit down and we're enjoying it. And you say, Luke, well, you know, the Christian faith just feels like there's so much to it. I mean, it always feels like there's something else I have to do in this burden. I mean, if you could just summarize the Christian faith in a sentence, what would it be? When we engage in a conversation, we're going back and forth, and, and we get to the same answer that this lawyer theologian have. It's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, that's, that's great. And we're so proud that we came to this conclusion. It's a good one. And then I ask you, do you love God? Do you 
love God. Now, your, your reaction is probably like, yeah, I do. You know, I, I, well, I want to. I know there's more things that I ought to be doing to be cultivating that relationship or to be showing my love for God more, but, I, you know, deep down, I, gosh, I, I do love God. You know, in, in many ways, the conversation is left there because your relationship with God and your love for God is, is deeply personal. That is something between you and the Lord as you are working that out, as you enter into that loving relationship and live in that. And then we move on and I'll ask you the second question. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Do you love others? If you're like me when you're thinking about this, you've been in your mind going through the last three weeks to a month thinking, okay, what are the good deeds that I've done recently to love my neighbor? If you're like me too, you're thinking, man, I'm so busy, it's so hard to even find time to love my neighbor. And then you might start thinking, well, I mean, who is my neighbor? Who ought I have to love? Who do I need to show that love too well? I mean, there's this real Karen across the street, man. If you knew her, and she is hard to love. She's always complaining about something, right? Do I have to love her as well? I mean, I was a little bit short with her this week, but, but if you knew her, goodness. Then maybe you start thinking a little bit farther, maybe just your street. You start thinking about, okay, is it... I mean, all the people in Palos Verdes and Redondo and Torrance, do I need to love all of them? I mean, that's, that's so big. Is there a select group, maybe? Maybe the people that I like that are part of my community, the people that I agree with, I can, I can love them well. And then you say, okay, well, why stop there? Maybe you extend it farther. What about Lomita and Lawndale? What about Hermosa and Manhattan and El Segundo? And the conversation goes, and we're okay, well, why stop there? What about Echo Park and Silver Lake? What about Compton and Inglewood? What about Pasadena and Hollywood and Beverly Hills? I mean, they, they need love too, don't they? Do I know of the needs there, and am I loving them well? Oh, goodness, I, I don't know anymore. Now, I don't know exactly what this lawyer was thinking, but if he's like me and I suppose like us, he was led to that question. The question that he then asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And he's trying to define, okay, if I'm supposed to love God and love others and it's going to be shown how well I love others, I mean, who are those that I need to love? If we can define that, I think I can, I can do that. And again, Jesus responds to that question in his pastor-therapist role. He doesn't just answer the question of who is my neighbor, but he tells a story. He tells a story as a preface to the question that he's going to ask at the end of this story. And this is where we come to the, the story. It's a story that I'm sure you've heard of thousand times. If you grew up in Sunday school, you've seen it on the felt board, I'm sure. 
The story of the Good Samaritan. It's one of the most famous parables and teachings of Jesus, and for good reason. I mean, we even have a law in the United States, the Good Samaritan Law. I mean, if you're not a Christian, you probably have heard of this story before. But this morning, I want us to hear it again with fresh ears. Because the profundity of this story is amazing. The depth of which it can lead us into is profound. Every once in a while, we pick up the scriptures and it's no longer just words on a page. It's no longer just black and white and red, if you have those Bibles. But it shows up as a mirror and you see yourself reflected in that story. And that's what I'm inviting us into this morning. So I'm going to read the story of the Good Samaritan. And to help us to listen to this again with fresh ears, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you are able, would you please stand? This is Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Lord, in your loving mercy, would you help us to understand this text as never before And more so, would you help us to live into the reality for which it speaks? For we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. What I'd like to do with the remainder of our time is to give you three observations about this text. Three observations I think help illuminate uh, what Jesus is doing in speaking to us. The first observation is, one that we've just kind of been hinting at, but to say explicitly, Luke wants us to see that the man who asked the question, who is my neighbor, was seeking to justify himself. You know, the same way that we do when we start to define who our neighbor is and who we ought to love. 
seeking to justify himself, he asks this. I think part of the reason that Jesus tells this parable and shows us this story is he's showing us the direction that self, a faith based off of self-justification leads. And this is why he shows us what the Levite and the priest do. See, the Levite and the priest are two examples of a faith based off of self-justification. What do I mean by that? Is that when they were walking down the road, as the story goes, and when they saw someone, and you know, we don't know exactly what excuse they had to pass on by, but I mean, they both did. There's something going on in their minds that said, "I don't need to take care of this." Some justification, some reason that they had that this need in front of me, this need for grace, this need for mercy, I, I don't have to deal with. We don't know what they're thinking. Jesus doesn't tell us, nor does Luke as he records Jesus' words. But we can imagine, because they're deeply religious folk, that's probably a religious reason. You may well know that if a priest or Levite touches a dead body, then they need to enter this purification ritual. right? So then they would have to cleanse themselves for it's about a week. So maybe they were coming down the road and they see this half-dead body. They think, okay, if he's really dead, I mean, I, I don't have to spend another week away from my family. I was just in Jerusalem fulfilling my duties. I mean, I was up there for my religious obligation. I really want to get home. I want to be with my wife and my kids now. I don't have to spend more time away from him. Oh, I'm just going to keep going. Or maybe the thought, you know what? It is because I was, I was just up in Jerusalem. I was just helping people offer their sacrifices and connect with the Lord. You know, that's, that's my role. That's what I was doing. And I'm good. I'm good to keep going. I've, I've done my part. Or maybe they thought, you know, this, this man might be a, a Samaritan. If you know the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, I mean... The Jews wouldn't eat with a Samaritan. Maybe you think, okay, if it's a Samaritan, that's, that's fine if he's left there. I don't, I don't want to touch him. So we remember from Todd's message a couple of weeks ago, the Jews called the Samaritan dogs. They didn't want to interact with them at all. So if it was one of our own, I'd, I'd stop and help. But, you know, this might be a Samaritan, so I'm just going to leave him there. Or maybe they had the thought, as sometimes do, of, okay, this man was attacked by robbers, and I know this to be a highly dangerous area, and, well, what happened to him might happen to me, so I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to keep on going. If it was an area with less crime, then I'd stop and help. But because I know this area to be a place of high crime, I'm just going to keep on going. I don't, I don't need to stop. Lord, if it was a little bit safer, I'd, I'd stop. Lord, I know you don't want me to be like this man on the side of the road, so I'm going to keep on going. Now, we don't know exactly the reasons why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. But if they're anything like me, those are the reasons I might not. And if you're like me, they're the reasons that we might not stop. 
a faith based off of self-justification leads us to miss things. Just like the priest and just like the Levite. A faith that's based off of our own understandings that seeks to define, to delineate who we love and how we love them. Leads us to miss things. Leads us to miss the heart of God. And indeed, we can't even measure up to the very standards that we set for ourselves. Jesus is showing us what a faith based off of self-justification looks like. The second observation I have for us is that the thing that the Samaritan had that the priest and the Levite did not have was compassion. As Luke records in his parable, it says that the Samaritan had compassion on him when he saw him. You know what compassion is? Compassion is that deep feeling that you get in your guts, like just deep down inside that moves you to want to do something about what you see. It really is something stirring with inside of you that says, I need to act. I need to do something. I can't just let things be as they are. And the Samaritan had compassion. A couple things about compassion, though, as we see in this parable is, one, compassion is often an interruption. I don't think it was in the Samaritan's plans that he had planned this stop and detour. I don't think he set off on his journey and was thinking, I'm going to run into someone here and I'm going to make sure I care for them well. I'm going to get home and tell everyone about it. Oh, it was a disruption. And Bill helped us see this last week as well, right? A lot of Jesus' miracles that he performed were often disruptions. Someone else came to him when he was trying to do something else and he saw that person in that moment and healed them. Jesus was very disruptible, and so was the Samaritan. The other thing about having compassion the Samaritan had is that it's costly. It's, it's costly to have compassion, which is part of the reason why we don't always want to do it. I mean, the Samaritan's plans for the day definitely changed. Now, if you're like me, I know you probably have your days and weeks planned out. Oh, I can't stop. i got X, Y, and Z coming up. And right after that, it's the ABCs all over again. You want me to stop and take care of something else and derail all that? It's costly. More than that, it costs the Samaritan quite a bit of money. Back in those days, one of the most valuable things that you owned was your tunic. You only had a couple of them. And you spent a lot of money on this and you'd wear one or the other all the time. So the Samaritan that saw this man lying dead on the road, for him to give him dignity again, he must have given him one of his tunics. I mean, he was lying there naked, half dead. and You wouldn't want to leave him like that. And so he took something that was extremely valuable to him and and gave the tunic to the man on the road. I don't know exactly how this went, but he was binding up his wounds and caring for him. I don't know. We know he used oil and wine, both expensive things, to care for it, to 
really tenderly make sure that he was doing everything well, making sure that the man was okay. He wasn't just rubbing dirt in it and saying, get over it, but he was providing the best care that he knew possible to this man. I don't know what he used to bandage his wounds, but I could imagine that the Samaritan was cutting pieces off of his own cloak, saying, your leg, I, I got. I will give some of what is most valuable to me to care for you. more than this so the Samaritan then puts the man on to his own donkey I mean the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is 17 miles and we don't know where they are in that journey but I'm guessing they're not close to the end so the rest of the journey that he had planned to ride on that donkey is now walking it's now moving a lot slower as well I mean, we know about the robbers there and he's now become a prime target isn't he He's walking in the heat of the day, going to the inn. And when he gets to the inn, he then offers. The innkeeper says, take care of him. He gives him two denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. You can calculate for yourself how much that would be for yourself. Imagine what you earn in a day and seeing a person who's in need of help and saying, two of my day's wage I'm going to give to you hard-earned money. You know, back then, most people were living paycheck to paycheck, so to say. I mean, this is is a big sacrifice that this Samaritan is making. Okay, I'll I'll put you up. I'll, I'll house you. It's more than this. He tells the innkeeper, he says, okay, any costs that you have while taking care of this man, I will come back and I will pay them in full. I will pay all the debts of this man. Now, we don't know how long he's going to be away or how much he's going to incur of cost. Let's just say it's six weeks. Again, you can do the math in your own head of what six weeks of earnings would be. Back in those days, there was no such thing as, as bankruptcy. If this man, the one who is half dead lying on the side of the road, he kind of got his strength back and he had all these debts to pay to the innkeeper. The innkeeper had every single right to say, you cannot pay me back now since you have no money. You are now my slave. You'll pay me back through work. You are now mine. He had every right to do that. The Samaritan, knowing this, says, I will pay all of his debts. He is no longer going to be a slave. That's not even an option. Friends, compassion costs us. It costs us more than we dare to realize or recognize. Compassion needs a generous heart that's just overflowing with mercy and grace. Jesus was asked the question, who is my neighbor? And in response, he tells us a story about what it means to be neighborly. What does it look like to be a neighbor? Rather than answering the question, he responds with this story. 
what does it look like to be a neighbor? Now, could you imagine, though, if we took a little theological survey and we were going around asking people, what do you think it means, or who is your neighbor? If I was going to ask each and every one of you, I'd go, who is your neighbor? I'm writing it all down, and then eventually I'd get to the Samaritan, or not the Samaritan, the man who's half dead lying on the side of the road, and I'd get to him, and I bend over, and he's wheezing and gasping for air, and I say, hey, bud, we're taking this theological survey, and we'd love your input. What do you think it means? Who is your neighbor? Now, if it's treating other people as he would want to be treated then, I mean, his answer would be as wide as the world. Anyone who sees me and is willing to help. My neighbor is anyone who sees the desperate need that I'm in and and will help me. Jesus shares with us what it means to be a neighbor. It's to see a need that you have the capacity to meet and to meet it with grace and mercy. So then Jesus, after the story, asked the man his question again. Which of these three do you think is neighborly? Which of them do you think was the best neighbor? And the man, I mean, he still couldn't dare to take the word Samaritan on his lips. There's no way he would. So get around that, he said, the one who had mercy. The one who had mercy. I mean, the Samaritans, again, they're, they're not people that you want to associate with. Do you imagine them being the hero of the story? You all probably have people in your own lives or groups of people that you're like, I don't really want them to know and experience the deep love of God. Or maybe you think, you know what, they're just so wrong in their thinking. They're just theologically, they're wrong. They just don't understand it. They just knew what we knew. They were just a part of my community. Jesus makes them the hero of this story. They are closer to understanding what the kingdom of God is really about than us when we are so focused on just getting something right. We are seeking to justify ourselves. Second observation. What the Samaritan had, the priest and the Levite did not, was compassion. And compassion costs us. Third observation. And this third observation, well, it's one that I don't think Luke originally intended. Well, Luke wanted us to see it, but Jesus, this wasn't the main point of Jesus' story, if that makes sense. Jesus doesn't tell this story for us to see this, but I think Luke wants us to see that, is that Jesus is the greater Samaritan. Jesus is the greater Samaritan. That maybe isn't the best words. We know that Jesus obviously is not a Samaritan. He was Jewish. Might be Jesus is the greater neighbor. He's a greater neighbor than the Samaritan. I mean, I don't even think that covers it, does it? Jesus is the greatest neighbor. There's no other neighbor like Jesus. You might be able to put some of the parallels of the story together in your own mind as I'm talking, but Jesus sees people who are helpless, and he goes and he sees them in their state, and he takes care of them. He binds them up. Jesus sees them in their state, and he provides shelter. Come to me, and I will rest you. 
Jesus sees them in their state and knows, I'm going to heal them. I want to make them whole. I want them to be whole again. Jesus sees them in their state and says, you will no longer be a slave anymore. You are free. Jesus is the greater neighbor. The greatest neighbor. Listen to the words of D.A. Carson, this great scholar and theologian. He says, when no one else can help us or save us or give us life, when others pass us by, when we are hurting or alone or crushed or defeated or don't know where to go or whom to turn to or when we are enslaved to bitterness or self-justification or when we are left for dead, it is Jesus who comes along. It is Jesus who picks us up. It is Jesus who binds our wounds. It is Jesus who pays our shelter. It is Jesus who frees us from slavery. And it is Jesus who gives us eternal life. Amen. Jesus gives us this life. What we cannot do for ourselves, God does. And this is the solution and the answer to the question of which we started with. When we are seeking self-justification, we see where it leads, but we know that we have been made righteous not because of what we do. It's not because of how well we love God and love others, but we are made righteous. We are justified by the cross of Jesus Christ. The justification that we have that makes us whole the reason that we get to spend eternity with God and enjoying his company and relationship forever is not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. You don't need to earn your righteousness. It is given to you. It is inherited. It is a gift. Self-justification, no more. Your righteousness is fully by the cross. Luke wants us to see this. In just the chapter before, he makes it very clear that Jesus' face was set towards the cross. Everything that happens after Luke 9 and onwards, Jesus is looking directly towards the cross. He knows what is required of him. He knows what the cross is going to cost him. He knows what compassion for us really entails. What compassion that costs us really costs the greatest neighbor knows. So when he says to the lawyer and when he says to us, go and do likewise, he's not putting a new law on us by no means. Or your justification is free. He's inviting us into what life is really all about. What life is really like. If you want to live in the kingdom of God, compassion is the way. If you're following Jesus to the cross, compassion is the way. It is the way and the journey to the cross demonstrated for us. Go. And do likewise. Can I have those who are serving communion come and distribute the elements? Friends, as we close, this is something that that the Lord is working in me. I have not arrived. Nor do I think we as a church have fully arrived. I mean, I think we're well on our way. 
we see examples of compassion and mercy all around us. We've been highlighting them as they come over the last several weeks. Think of Tiger over there. James and Bray being disrupted to care for Tiger. Think of Harry and Vicky, of their relationship and connection. Think of the hunger heroes and and how they saw the need and saw our neighbors over there and, and cared for them. Think of Amelia Accardo as a freshman at PV High starting a club. Thank you, Bill. I'm just, just this one. Amelia Accardo starting a club on PV High campus to raise money for Baja Bound. She's inviting others in her school to participate in providing a home for people just to the south of Ensenada or in desperate need of a more firm shelter. Because there's many examples of compassion demonstrated among us, and compassion demonstrated in your own life and my own life. But Jesus, I believe, is still inviting us farther into all that he has for us. There's more to experience. There's more to see, more to love. So as we partake of the elements here, I'm going to invite you to reflect on the compassion of God demonstrated for you. The compassion of Jesus, the cost of the cross. The cost of compassion. And then begin thinking, what does this compassion entail for your life? So let's take the elements together. Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ, which is given for you. Take and eat. Brothers and sisters, this is the blood of Jesus shed for you. Take and drink. We worship a compassionate Savior. We're going to end our service now by saying the benediction that we said last week as well. So, Can I, Charlie, my main slide man, can you throw the benediction up there? And everyone else, would you stand with me as we say the benediction? So I'm going to read the first line up top, and then I invite everyone to respond together with the words that are in bold. Um, We'll say, we'll send to the cross of Christ, and then you will end with, we set our hope, we set our hopes on the risen Christ. Here we go. All our problems, all our difficulties, All the devil's works, all our hopes. Amen.